according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me this morning for the first time. We're going to take a look at Proverbs chapter 20. Our first uh, class in Proverbs chapter 20 this morning. Last week we wrapped up the uh, final items we've been dealing with there in uh, chapter 19. So we're ready now to get a, to get a whole new chapter. And uh, you'll notice the pericope heading is the same on life and conduct. <laughs> it's kind of been doing that. It was actually a new one starting in chapter 19 and then continuing on in chapter 20. We had a whole string of them in a row that was contrast of the upright and the wicked. Um, I'm not sure who was in charge of pericope headings for the New American Standard Bible, but I think he got pretty bored working his way through the book of Proverbs and just repeated the same chapter heading at the top of, of so many of these chapters. But in any event, Proverbs chapter 20 as we get started this morning. Remember God is spirit, he must be worshipped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the study of the word of God. Let's take a moment for silent prayer, giving each believer priest the opportunity to humble ourselves for our instruction. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for this day and the blessing we have to assemble together. Several of us here in person in the building, Father, and that's a blessing as well uh, as for those that are uh, watching remotely on YouTube, uh, either in a live stream or uh, later on in a, in a replay down the road. Father, thank you for the possibility to keep these things recorded and preserved, archived. Thank you for our church website, which was having some issues this morning, but uh, there's men working on it even as we speak. So, Father, I thank you for, uh, for being faithful in, uh, in all things. I thank you and I praise you calling upon your faithfulness once again to open the eyes of our understanding that you would bless us through the truth of your word. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so um, I mentioned, I kind of teased it last week as we were dismissing that uh, we were going to be dealing with drunkenness this morning, and so here we are. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler. And uh, whosoever or whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. This is one of our whosoever passages that we have in many places throughout the Scripture that uh, doesn't apply to any person specifically, but applies to anybody generally if, in fact, you meet these qualifications. It's like whosoever believeth in Him. And uh, whosoever will, well then here's the consequences. Here's the effect. And so whosoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. That it's a departure from your faculties. And in departing from your faculties... Uh, you cannot possibly be functioning in the realm of God's wisdom. That's, that's clear. And this is why, uh, although in moderation it's a blessing and it's relaxing and it's, uh, uh, it's a joy as God has provided it. And uh, some of that will come up as well later on in Proverbs, we'll see. Um, but drunkenness is not. And this is part of what happens when sin gets involved, when Satan gets involved. This is what happens when people take God's provision for our good and then pervert it, twist it, abuse it and uh, turn it into uh, something uh, terrible. And that's uh, what we'll be looking at here. All right. So uh, whereas Proverbs has mentioned wine in a couple of different contexts, uh, the admonition against drunkenness makes its first appearance here. And I'll be honest, that really surprised me. I was, uh, um, you know, we have to get 20 chapters into a book of Proverbs to, to finally have something addressing drunkenness. That's... Uh, 
it's a curious thing to me that, uh, you know, I don't know why, uh, in, in my mind anyway, you would think that drunkenness would be earlier than that, that you would, you would stress it earlier. We have stressed um, fornication, we've seen that uh, from even the youngest of ages. We saw that in the parental wisdom portion. But you would have thought that maybe there would have been something in chapters 1 through 9 of where the parents are exhorting their children, you know, my son, do not neglect my teaching or do not ignore your mother's instruction. And maybe in those first nine chapters we would have had this thing uh, against drunkenness. Uh, but no, we really don't get the, uh, the issue on drunkenness here until Proverbs 20. Let's look at these earlier ones though, Proverbs 4 and Proverbs 9. There are wine references early, but uh, not necessarily uh, specific to the sin of drunkenness. So let's take a look, Proverbs 4, 17. And keep forgetting I can put the uh, ah, I didn't even start my Bible software yet. Let me do that. Get that up and running. All right. Proverbs 4.17, while it's deciding if it's going to do what it's going to do or not. Here we go. For they eat the bread of wickedness and they drink the wine of violence. Obviously there's a larger context to that. If we back up a little bit, we'll see it. Uh, you'll notice, well, who, who are these people? You know, verse 16 says they cannot sleep unless they do evil. Well, who are these people? Back up even more. Uh, avoid it. Avoid what? Who are these people? Back up even more. Okay, here we go. Verse 14. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not proceed in the way of evil men. So that gives you your context then, going all the way back to verse 14. That uh, parents are training their children that there's a way of righteousness and there's a way of wickedness. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not proceed in the way of evil men. And, uh, you know, you watch the news and you see current events and uh, it's, uh, it's kind of a no-brainer. There's a crowd of people you don't want to be running with. And uh, you get in trouble running with that crowd. So do not proceed in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not pass by it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they do evil. They are robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. And you wonder, how, how unstable is this lifestyle? How, how uh, damaging is it to the soul if it has such effects on a person that it even impacts their sleep patterns or, or it uh, just provides a compulsion? There's so much compulsion with sin and violence and, and darkness when, uh, when uh, people get caught up in it. And uh, so I think that's what verse 17 then addresses. They have their sleep is affected and then look at what they're eating and drinking. Eating the bread of wickedness and drinking the wine of violence. And of course those are metaphors, but I think we can relate to them and understand them pretty well. Jesus even used a similar metaphor with his disciples when uh, in John chapter 4 uh, he's sitting at the well and the, they'd gone into the city to buy food and they came back and they said, hey, here, we got some food for you. And he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. He says, I have food to eat of which you do not know. And uh, it's a remarkable text um, you know, and I guess I'll let it go for this morning. But keep in mind, this is this is the usage that we see here in Proverbs, where 
It's like you're eating food. It's, it's an activity you're doing that has a sustaining component to it, a spiritual sustaining. If uh, you're doing the will of God, it's, it's sustaining to you. But here, these guys, uh, they also have an eating and a drinking that they're doing. Uh, but it's uh, wickedness and violence. The bread and the wine of wickedness and violence. And so uh, don't, don't lose the reality in the metaphor and understand that uh, those that are caught up in this, in this lifestyle, in this way of, of operation, uh, this is what they're feasting on. This is what uh, they get drunk on it. And, uh, and, and uh, it's kind of curious how they need, to, they need more and more and more as uh, they build up a resistance, they build up a tolerance for the wine, and now they need more of it and more of it and more of it to get, to get the uh, more violence, to get the same high that uh, maybe they've gotten before. All right, so that's Proverbs 4.17. Proverbs 9, uh, 2 and 5. And this is in a positive sense because this is wisdom personified, wisdom, uh, the woman wisdom personified. Of course, Chachma is a feminine noun and so we don't have any issue with wisdom being personified as a woman in uh, so many of these passages. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table she has sent out her maidens. She calls from the tops of the city. Well, this seems like a pretty good gig, <laughs> right? I, I, I'd like to attend something like that. And uh, uh, there's a table set, the wine's prepared, the meal is ready. There's an invitation that goes out. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, come, eat of my food and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake your folly and live. Proceed in the uh, the way of understanding. So that's Proverbs 9 verses 1 through 6. And that's uh, an interesting uh, context because it's presenting food and wine in a, in a positive light. It says not a sin to drink wine, it's provided God designed it for our enjoyment and for our blessing. And uh, we'll see other references in, uh, in Proverbs specifically. Now drunkenness is a problem because that's an abuse, but in moderation to enjoy what God has provided there is nothing wrong with that and everything right with that. And it's uh, with, with wisdom personified inviting uh, the naive person to come in and learn. Uh, it's, it's a welcome thing. And we should, uh, we should appreciate that. You know, and every once in a while I encounter folks and they absolutely insist on a, a 100% abstinence, teetotaling approach. And it's just, it's remarkable to me that, that they would hold a view such as that. I, I don't want to be critical of them, but still it, it bugs me that, you know, our Savior chose wine as uh, one of the components of, of our communion service, that we have bread and wine. And uh, the idea that our Savior would, would command us to do something, He says, do this in remembrance of me, and oh, by the way, you'll be sinning when you do it because wine is evil. To me, that's just, um, uh, it's, it's, doesn't make any sense. But anyway, it is what it is. Believers have their convictions, and I just thank God that they walk according to their convictions. All right. So Proverbs has mentioned wine in a couple of different contexts. The admonition against drunkenness, however, makes its first appearance here. And this is what we have with uh, the brawler and the mocker. And, uh, and to be stumbling, whoever is intoxicated by it. The verb there for intoxication speaks of, of uh, tottering or wobbling or, st- or staggering. Uh, you're just, you're not yourself. You're, you're not yourself physically, you're not yourself mentally. You don't have your faculties uh, and you're just, uh, you're just tottering away. And uh, you depart from wisdom at that point. 
the, the next use comes in the next chapter, Proverbs 21, 17. He who loves pleasure will become a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not become rich. And so this, uh, I think this is a nice tandem as well related to what we've been seeing with respect to the love of money. In Hebrews we were told, let your character be free from the love of money. And the problem with loving things, whether it's money or food or wine or uh, pleasure, the, the love of entertainment and so forth, we can enjoy things, but to love them uh, to, you know, like, like I mentioned with respect to money, money will not love you back. You cannot have the rapport love with money because it's, it's a one-way street. You know, it's, it's unreturned love. And if, if that happens in a personal relationship where the love is one way, not returned, well, that's destructive. That's a terrible relationship. The other person's just using you and, and uh, the one-way love doesn't work. That's not philos. That's not the, the rapport of phileo love. Um, likewise, money's not going to love you back. Wine's not going to love you back. Pleasure isn't going to love you back. Whatever it is, now you can enjoy. And here's the thing: you got to have the capacity to enjoy what God has provided, and that comes about when you love God. So you love the Lord your God, and you thank the Lord your God for what He's provided. These things are sanctified by means of the Word of God and prayer, and so we put them in in context, and. Uh, we don't end up loving the, uh, the, the, the provision, we love the provider, the one who gave the provision. And that, uh, that makes all the difference in the world. So, uh, so are, you, are you wrong then if you use the word love and you say, I love bacon or, uh, or I love uh, pork chops or whatever? You know, so no, I, I say you're not wrong. We understand that there's a wide range of idiomatic usages for love. Um, but if, but but if you want to keep it strictly biblical, then you should say, uh, "I have absolute love for the Creator God who gave me the bacon, <laughs> and therefore I I love and appreciate the bacon He provided." How about that? All right, and so that's uh, Proverbs twenty one seventeen. Now we have a little bit of a longer development in Proverbs twenty three. So let's take a look at that. Proverbs twenty three and verse twenty. Do not be with heavy drinkers of wine or with gluttonous eaters of meat. For the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty and drowsiness will clothe one with rags. Now this is curious because not only is it uh, an admonition against drunkenness and gluttony both, but also association with such people. So maybe you're not exactly the drunk or the glutton, but your association with them is going to affect you as well. That's why it says do not be with heavy drinkers of wine or with gluttonous eaters of meat. So even proximity to such are going to cause you issues. And as, as anyone knows, if they uh, have a family member that's an alcoholic or they've got other, uh, you know, a spouse with, with issues, that, uh, that it affects more than just them, that it affects the spouse, the children, and, and, uh, and everything else. Um, going down the verses that follow, if we get down to verses 30 and 31, you'll see this. Those who, uh, let's see, it's hard on this to see a larger context, that's where a paper Bible sometimes helps, where you can see the whole page at once. So Proverbs, um, let's back up to verse 29. 
Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? What a series of rhetorical questions. Again, plug this verse into the current events you're watching unfold in the, in the news, on the cable news networks or the newspapers or whatnot. I mean, who has woe? Well, we all do in some respects. Who doesn't? You know, Show me somebody that doesn't have a problem in their life. Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Okay? We live in a fallen world and uh, sometimes terrible things happen. And uh, there are un- unfair things that happen. What are you going to do about it? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. So, in other words, you reach a certain point in your drunkenness where watching the, watching the color change in the, uh, as, as you're draining the, the glass... Then you're watching it go down, and then, boy, it kind of looks sparkly. And then you get kind of fascinated by how sparkly it is. And it's going down smoothly, but then at the last, it bites like a serpent. It stings like a viper. And uh, it's hitting you, and you didn't realize, wow, that snuck up on me. Okay. Your eyes will see strange things, and your mind will utter perverse things. This is why you've departed from wisdom. Your faculties have been given over. And so you start seeing things and, and, you know, asking your buddy if he sees it too. (laughs) And then he's seeing something even stranger than you're seeing, okay? And your mind will utter perverse things. And you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or like one who lies down on top of a mast. So that's uh, not stable. That's rocking and rolling and waving and, yeah. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? I will seek another drink. <laughs> you know? And uh, how terrible. Is that the answer to your hangover in the morning? Just uh, you finally woke up long enough to, to find the next bottle and, and add some more to the trouble? So, uh, anyway. Yeah, we chuckle, and it is funny, I admit, but it's also sad. Because think about how many people, people we know, that this is their lifestyle, this is what they're enslaved to. And um, in some cases, you know, the grace of God gets him out of it. And he res- the power of God can rescue from any addiction. I believe that. There's the, you know, his omnipotence is not limited by the chemicals we enslave ourselves to. And uh, by the grace of God, any drunk can, can sober up and any drug addict can, can walk away. But, you know, you do damage in the meantime and, and, uh, to yourself and your body and your marriage and your family. It's just a terrible, terrible situation. All right. Well, that gets us to the end of the chapter there. Um, also Proverbs 31. Now when you think Proverbs 31, you're thinking virtuous woman. Uh, this is a little bit ahead of that in the earlier part of the chapter. Verses 4 and 5, specifically addressing drunkenness. But anyway, it's interesting. The... Um, the words of King Lemuel, the oracle, which his mother taught him. And uh, any king, of course, <laughs> used to be a baby and, used to gr- and had to grow up. And uh, if he had a godly mother to ground him in wisdom as he was growing up, then praise God for that. And uh, hopefully she taught him some things that will stick with him even after he's a king, even after he's high and mighty and, and all these things. 
Uh, what, O my son, and what, O son of my womb, and what, O son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, or your ways to that which destroys kings. And so any child, any boy has to be warned about the wrong kind of girls, and any girl has to be warned about the wrong kind of boys. Um, but think about the occupational hazards for uh, <laughs> for political leaders. Think about uh, our president and our governor and our mayor and all the political leaders that we pray for. Think about the things that can trip them up, cause them to stumble. Think of the trouble they can get into and, uh, and different things there. And look, I mean, the wisest man that ever lived and uh, look what ruined him, all right? And all the women and all the idolatry and all of the, the things that happened there. You know, and I think we had a, it comes up in the news every now and then when a, when a pastor falls and he gets caught with some mistress somewhere. Or you get, there's things in the news of, uh, of uh, you know, General Petraeus, for example, had, a, had a, an issue there. And it's just, it's sad, okay? And, and you realize, you know, we're all human and we're all sinners and any man can, can fall for that or any woman could fall for that, for that matter. But when you're in a position of authority, in a position of responsibility, then you're, you're doubly vulnerable because you're vulnerable to the sin, but then through the sin you're vulnerable to um, blackmail, extortion, compromising national security. You're vulnerable to any number of things. You know, what are you going to do to keep this quiet kind of a thing? And then once you're compromised, then you become an agent, and it's, uh, it's terrible. So, um, and there's plenty of examples of this, not just in the modern world, but back to the ancient world. And here Lemuel's mother knew all about this. And, and if we take Lemuel as being a, a, um, a pet name, if you will, for, for Solomon, and we understand that Bathsheba then is the mother who is uh, advising him in this regard, um, you know, she knows of that which she speaks uh, because of the way that, uh, that the David and Bathsheba relationship started and the way that uh, Solomon was even conceived because his older brother died in, uh, in uh, the consequence of God's discipline there on David's life. So um, anyway, Solomon himself is the, is the replacement for that child that died. And uh, imagine a lot of these things went into his childhood, into his training, into the teaching that, uh, that brought him up. So yes, um, the seduction and the, the, the trouble there with women is one thing, and then drunkenness is the next when we get to verses 4 and 5. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink. And, and now I had just said a few minutes ago, there's nothing wrong with wine, it's God's provision and this is for our blessing. However, there may be occasions when you say, you know what, my responsibilities are such that I'm going to forego this. My duties are such that for this time it's, uh, uh, it's best that I not partake. I want to be uh, alert. I want to be making wise decisions, and uh, we'll save the we'll save the celebration for uh, for after work <laughs> when I'm off duty, so to speak. Anyway, so it's not for kings, Olamuel. It's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink, which is probably a term for beer. There's uh, there's different ideas of what the ancient brewing and um, the the processes there for fermenting and distilling and brewing. Um, they, they, most of the commentators believe this is more of a beer in the strong drink. Anyway, they, verse 5 says, they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. And so, uh, yeah, 
you end up with that. And in the pro, you know, um, you know, a knucklehead gets drunk and stumbles and whatever and finds his way home. That's one thing. But if it's the if it's the president of the United States, if it's a king, if it's a, you know somebody in authority, think of the damage they can do. You know, they, they're all just drunk off their whatever and they're fiddling around and 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 they're holding the the nuclear button. <laughs> all right, that's not good. And uh, whatever else. All right. But then it says, interesting, it says, give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. Now why is that a prescription? Why is that recommended? Why is that? Now this is still the, the um, I think this is still the mother's words to uh, the king. Maybe it's the king's words now. Um, but get, uh, give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. There's a place for it. And uh, especially for one who's perishing, when they're on their deathbed, when they're suffering, when, when uh, the, the, there's, uh, there's nothing wrong, when the, the hospice nurses are, are uh, offering the, the, um, the, the dosages to keep them comfortable. They offer the morphine, they offer what they do, and, and, and the person is, is uh, going to be made comfortable to, to ease the suffering. That's humane. That's, that's, a, joy, that's a blessing, see, and uh, when, they, when they've reached the point they realize there's no palliative care, there's no treatment, they're not going to get better, they, uh, they go to this, uh, to this thing. And I remember I had to sign all these papers and, and all this to uh, you know, waivers and releases and the recognition that you're reaching the point now that they're no longer endeavoring to, to heal or restore the person that they realize that this is their, this is their departure. And this is the finality of the, of the, of, of the human walk. And so I think you can see this, the principle reflected here. Wine to him whose life is bitter. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his trouble no more. Now, let's be cautious with that because can this be abused? <laughs> okay, is, is the Bible saying that you just spend the rest of your life in, uh, in drunken forgetfulness? And uh, it's not saying do this as a lifestyle, but on an occasion there's nothing wrong. If you had a, a, a terrible, no good, long, miserable, rotten day, and you get home and you kick off your shoes and you put your feet up, and uh, and you would be blessed by a relaxation uh, event, <laughs> beverage, if you will, uh, you're not sinning. And in part, this is the the purpose for the um, relaxation that alcohol provides. Anyway. Um, so you have that there. The proper place for it, the abuse of it, I think it's useful. It's useful that Proverbs presents this. It's useful that, as I mentioned, chapter 4, chapter 9, those are in the, the parental uh, wisdom portion of the book, that young people can be advised uh, that there's a, a right path and a wrong path, and what's the appropriate use of this. I think the invitation by wisdom, uh, woman wisdom there in, in uh Proverbs 9 is, is a marvelous thing. So that they see the appropriate setting for, for feasting, the appropriate setting for drinking, the appropriate setting for uh, legitimate celebration as God has designed it. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that. And if children see that growing up and they understand what the parameters are and uh, they have something to look forward to <laughs> when they reach the age-appropriate time for such enjoyment as well. Alright. Does that make sense? Okay, I hope it does. And I think it's. I think we can do the same. The same principle applies with food. The same principle applies 
with alcohol, the same principle applies with, with marital relations, that we, we teach the children from the, the earliest of ages the, the God's design, the, the blessings, the benefit, the purpose that, uh, that within, you know, of a husband and a wife within marriage, and then the, the children are trained with that, looking forward to the day that they leave father and mother and cleave to one another, and the two become one flesh in that regard. All right. Secondly, Oh, before we move on, I forgot about this. The idea of personification. Personification. So um, a brawler, a mocker. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler. To personify wine and strong drink, to turn them into characters, like the, the brawler and the, uh, the mocker. All right, To turn them into characters and portray them in, with this uh, uh, device, with this literature device, is uh, it's called personification. All right, and it's not unusual. It's very normal. In fact, it's useful in many respects, and uh, it's used uh, in other places throughout Proverbs. It's used of poverty and need, back in chapter six, and uh, again in chapter twenty-four. You might recall this was the personification of the sluggard, the lazy man, and uh, and his laziness. His laziness personified is the um, even a even a, a robber. We're told. I'm trying to remember now, Proverbs six eleven. Yes, your poverty will come in like a vagabond, and your need like an armed man. All right, now those are those are vivid. I mean, those are those are uh, portrayals that communicate quite a bit. Because you can think about a, a uh, vagabond. We need to use that more. Let's bring vagabond back into common, common usage. But, you know, uh, uh, a vagrant, a hobo, a bum, uh, you know, whatever terms that uh, we're told not to use anymore because they're not politically correct. But, you know, the, uh, the persons experiencing homelessness, okay, or, or whatever the politically correct term is, the urban out, outdoorsman. The uh, <laughs> okay, I'll stick with vagabond. That's what I see on the page there. But you know, so is is it vivid? Is it does it does it resonate? You know, when when you see the word, when you think of the idea, I think that that you understand it, and then you realize, wait a minute, is that me? Uh, is this am I am I such a slugger that I'm headed for this life of poverty? And because uh, there's no need for that, God didn't design that, and. and uh, and the issues there. Likewise, your need, like an armed man. So think about the these looters, and think about the uh, you know the the thug that comes along with a weapon, and and uh, and he's going to take what he wants. And are you going to stop him? Um, that's the armed man, the um, the assailant, if you will, a man with a shield. Yeah. And so you know, and then now not only do you have a need, but your need is bossing you around. Your need is is controlling what you do and where you go, and 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 other things that maybe you don't like. <laughs> and your need is now uh, is now uh, in charge as the armed man, as the thug, as the looter, rioter. And uh, if you don't do what he says, you're in trouble. You're going to pay a price for for defying the uh, the looter. And uh, so anyway, this is personification, and it gets used in these ways because, uh, it, because they come alive. They're effective. They're effective means of, of communication. Likewise, uh, 
24:34. Again, your poverty will come as a robber, your want like an armed man. So quite similar there to 6:11. Proverbs 24:34. Yeah, a vagabond. Literally one who walks. Yeah, the the Hebrews hilarious sometimes in some of their idioms and their expressions. Um, anyway. Most frequently, the, the thing that's, that's uh, personalized more than anything else in Proverbs is wisdom. And we already saw Proverbs 9 where Lady Wisdom had her table set. We looked at Proverbs 9 earlier, verses 1 through 6. And that's wisdom personified. Um, also, typically, in almost every one of these cases, uh, you can see uh, the actual deeper reality is that it's, uh, it's a reference to the Word. It's a reference to Jesus Christ, the second member of Trinity, God the Son. And, uh, and we can see Jesus in every one of these wisdom personified passages. It's not surprising to us because He is the wisdom of God. He is the power of God. He is the Word. And uh, it's not shocking that the Hachma from Proverbs is the Lagos from, from the Gospel of John. And that's, uh, I think it's pretty clear in most of these passages as we see them. Starting with Proverbs 1, let's talk about this. And, I, and maybe it's good too to understand what personification is so that we don't when, when, when people throw it at you to say, oh, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, and that can't be Jesus Christ, that's just wisdom personified. You can stop him and say, slow down now, okay? It's both. Yes, I understand it's wisdom personified, and I understand what the rhetorical device of personification is designed to do, and I understand its usage in the literature, not just for wisdom, but also for poverty and, and drunkenness and all these other things. That there's a valid place for personification, but there's also a truth embedded in that personification. There is a truth within that. And with respect to the Word of God, the living Word of God is Jesus Christ. And we know that. All right. Proverbs 1, 20-33. That's a long section. Proverbs 1, 20-33. And this is just too small. I'm going to go full screen with this. I'm told I can. Do we have these written down already? Proverbs 1, 20 through 33. Proverbs 3, 13 through 18. Proverbs 4, 6. Proverbs 8. Almost the whole chapter. But two large sections. Verses 1 through 21. And then, I believe, take it as well, 22 through 36. Referring to Jesus Christ. And, uh, of course, 9, 1 through 6 we looked at earlier. All right, let me go full screen on this. That's easier. All right, wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. So understand how this, how this extended metaphor is being used. This is a personification of God's wisdom. And uh, don't confuse the... The, uh, the, the, the poetic language don't con- with the reality. The recognition that God's Word will benefit us wherever we may find it. And it's not hard to find. It's everywhere if we are looking for it. How long, O oh, naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing. And fools hate knowledge. Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my Spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Now as you read this, you can, you can process it, you can think through it, you can think through it as 
the personification of wisdom. You could think of it as the value of Bible doctrine in your life. You could think about it as the Scriptures and the, and the benefits of taking in the Word of God. But then also, you can process it and think of this through in terms of the benefit of a relationship with Jesus Christ, coming to faith in Christ. And what does Christ provide for those that have uh, the relationship with Him? And then what do you forsake when you forsake Jesus Christ? So turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my Spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I called and you refused. I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. What value is there in the Word of God if you reject it? What value is there in Jesus Christ if you reject it? He died for your sins, but are you going to reject the gospel? Are you not going to place your faith in Christ? So you neglected all my counsel I did not, and did not want my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind when distress and anguish come upon you. Now we can think of this again as the Word of God in, in person, uh, personified. Think of this as wisdom personified. You know, you can think about it when you've committed a sin and uh, you're now paying the price for that sin and you're convicted and you're repentant and you're confessing and, and a verse just jumps out at you and slaps you upside the head. And, uh, okay. And there's the verse. And it's like, the, it's like it's just sitting there on the page and it's, it's laughing at you, right? Because you knew that verse and you ignored it. You suppressed it. You quenched the spirit and you committed the sin you wanted to commit. And so it's like the Bible itself is laughing at you. God's wisdom is laughing at you. Jesus Christ is laughing at you in the, the metaphor of this passage here. All right. They will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. At this point, all he's waiting to hear is your confession, okay? And you can, uh, you can try to bargain and all these other things. It's a waste of time. Just humble yourself and confess. That's all he's waiting to listen to. And otherwise, he's not going to listen to anything. Because they hated knowledge, they did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. The waywardness of the naive will kill them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. Remember we saw that at the end of chapter 19, that the fear of the Lord puts us at ease. We're not visited. We're not visited by evil. We can sleep content at night because of the fear of the Lord. So he who listens to me, he who comes to Jesus Christ, take this in a gospel application. All right, so this is the, the first of these. What else are we looking at? Uh, chapter 3, verses uh, 13 through 18. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. Again, wisdom personified. We, we want to learn the Word of God. We want to uh, intake Bible doctrine. We want to apply Bible doctrine. We get all that but also with respect to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Wisdom personified is also the person of God the Son, our Savior. Her profit is better than the profit of silver. Her gain is better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels. Nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways. All her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. 
and happy are all who hold her fast. Can you see Jesus in these verses? Can you see the benefit of having a relationship with Jesus Christ? Okay. Now some people struggle because it's feminine here. And Jesus is masculine. All right, I get that. <laughs> the Logos is masculine. But the Chachma is feminine. So this, this imagery is, is feminine. When it gets personified, it gets personified as a woman. Because the noun itself for wisdom is a feminine noun. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. Didn't He by Jesus Christ? Didn't God the Father design it and Jesus Christ built it? By understanding He established the heavens. By His knowledge the deeps were broken up and the skies drip with dew. Anyway, so we have the Word of God personified. We have wisdom personified. Over to chapter 4 and verse 6. Verse 5 says, Acquire wisdom, acquire understanding. Do not forget or turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will guard you. So that's personified, right? So it's like you're acquiring wisdom, you're acquiring understanding, you're learning Bible doctrine, you're, 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 placing the, the, you're hiding the word in your heart. All these expressions. So you're learning doctrine. You're claiming a promise. You're claiming, uh, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You're claiming... The battle is the Lord's. You're claiming, I mean, whatever your favorite Bible verses are and however many you have memorized. Memorize as many as you can and then memorize some more. And keep them, keep them there. She will guard you. Love her and she will watch over you. Think about how the Word of God is alive and powerful. The Word of God has a benefit. And in the personification of, of wisdom, it actively does things. Watching over you. Guarding you. And we also see Jesus Christ in this because we're saved and we're in Christ and Jesus is filling us, has filled us and the benefits of a relationship with Jesus Christ. So the beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. With all your acquiring, get understanding. Prize her and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a garland of grace. She will present you with a crown of beauty. Who is it that's going to be rewarding us when we stand face to face before the Bema Seat? It's going to be Jesus Christ. All right. So in all of these, we can we can read through all of these personification of wisdom passages and appreciate them for what they are, digest them, and and apply them uh, as such with uh, the the import of of learning Bible doctrine and living it in your life. But then also understand that Jesus Christ is the living Word. This is the written Word. Jesus Christ is the living Word. And then when we're talking about the Word of God, we're talking about the wisdom of God, we're talking about both. The canon of Scripture that's provided for us and the Son that was given for us. Okay? It's important that we recognize that. Oh, that's interesting. Haven't haven't done that before. All right. How did I do that? That's how I did that. All right, we'll never do that again. (laughs) All right, so Proverbs 1, Proverbs 3, Proverbs 4. We already looked at Proverbs 9. Let's look at Proverbs 8. And this is the one that got me in trouble a few months ago. And man, had some Facebook attacks and other things. It's like I'm a heretic or whatever. It's curious to me.
like I made this up or something. No, all the church fathers used this. So Justin Martyr used this. In fact, when Justin Martyr was writing to uh, Trifo, to a Jewish man, telling him about why you needed to, uh, to uh, go past your Old Testament and read the New Testament and understand who Jesus is, uh, the whole, uh, one of the, the main ways that he used to illustrate was to take Proverbs 8 and the wisdom here and show the Logos from John chapter 1. And he said the Proverbs 8 wisdom is the John 1 Logos, it's Jesus. And he was urging the, the Jewish unbeliever to, uh, to accept Christ for eternal life and, and, uh, and so forth. Anyway, so Proverbs 8, I wisdom... Does not wisdom call and understanding lift up her voice on top of the heights beside the way where the paths meet? She takes her stand beside the gates at the opening of the city. At the entrance of the doors, she cries out. So it's, it's a personification of wisdom and she's very loud and she's very uh, uh, powerful in what she's doing here. To you, O man, I call and my voice is to the sons of men. O naive ones, understand prudence. And O fools, understand wisdom. Listen, for I will speak noble things, and the opening of my lips will reveal right things. For my mouth will utter truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. So this is the Word of God speaking as if it's a person, okay, so that we can learn and we can benefit from the doctrine being communicated here. And then we stop and we go back and we read it again, because the Word of God is a person. (laughs) The Word of God is God the Son. The, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And so uh, these things that apply to personified wisdom apply to Jesus as well. So verse 12, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. I find knowledge and, discre- and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. See, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The world is so damaged in how it defines love and hate that... Um, Anyway, don't get me sidetracked on that. We find the birthing of wisdom in verse 22. The conception and the birth. The Lord begat me at the beginning of His way before His works of old. It's translated possessed me in the New American Standard Bible. I prefer begat as the rendering of kana in this context. From everlasting I was woven or established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. We have to connect this with in the beginning God because this is a different beginning. This is before God created. When there were no depths. Remember in the beginning uh, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and void and the Spirit of God was brooding over the surface of the deep. Well before that there were no depths. When there were no depths I was birthed brought forth, when there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. I was birthed. And so we have a birthing passage, a birthing description. It starts in verse 22, goes all the way down. Okay? And uh, you'll notice as you work all your way through this, he says in verse 30, I was beside him as a master workman, daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, playing always before him. Here we have the word, wisdom personified, the God-man, Jesus Christ, the agent of God the Father in creating, rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men.
Anyway, we've been through this several times. This should be familiar to you. Just want to remind you, we're looking at wisdom personified, the value of the Word of God in your life, but then also look deeper, find the, who, the, who the personal Word is. It's God the Son. It's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who clearly deity is not birth, but humanity is. Humanity has a beginning. This is when God the Son became the God-man. This is hypostatic union in the, uh, the poetry of this text. Okay, now that, if you process that and you think it through, it, it has some amazing ramifications. But it will also spark some arguments with uh, well-meaning brothers and sisters, and they're not our enemies, but they just, uh, they've never thought about it before. They've never studied this text. They've never wondered about it. They've just assumed that when the baby was born in a Bethlehem manger, that that's what, uh, that's what defines his humanity. That, that God the Son became the God-man in the manger, okay? Or in the virgin's womb. And they, they equate humanity or hypostatic union with incarnation, okay? And that's not proper to equate those. Pretty normal, pretty common, almost everybody does. But incarnation is when the Word became flesh. When did the Word become the Word? When did God the Son become the God-man, in the birthing of personified wisdom. We see it here. Okay? And this is the alpha moment of time and the beginning of his works from eternity. Okay. If you want more on that, shoot me an email. I've got a whole MP3 given to this and uh, some notes available and things there. Let's take a look at verse 2. Perhaps even more unwise than drunkenness is to provoke political authorities to anger. <laughs> okay? What's worse than being drunk? The terror of a king. The terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. He who provokes him to anger forfeits his own life. You don't want government mad at you. Any government. And uh, a despotic king may be worst of all. Uh, but even in a, in a representative republic, even in a in a uh, in modern times, you don't want you know can't fight city hall. You don't want government mad at you. What are you going to do if you are provoking them? So the terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. You know, think about the devil prowling about like a roaring lion. Think about the fear that that instills, knowing that uh, that he's hungry and your lunch. <laughs> okay, and uh, it's not a good not a good place to be. He who provokes him. You know, you're going to poke the lion? What are you doing? He's hungry. He's growling. And you're poking him? Forfeits his own life. So perhaps even more unwise than drunkenness is to provoke political authorities to anger. We have this verse here, a couple other passages as well, back in chapter 16 and chapter 19. We've covered them already. That makes uh, today a bit of a review. You can actually combine the two. You can combine drunkenness with angering the king. <laughs> and that's what Haman did. Um, he got drunk and he uh, angered the king. Let's see, how fast can we get through this? So both Proverbs 20 verses 1 and 2 are illustrated by Haman and King Ahasuerus. Esther 7, 7. All right, I'll bring this back down again to... a. More modest place. 
Remember what's happening here in Esther 7? They're having this feast, they're having this banquet. The king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. This is a total setup because Esther's trying to save her people. And Haman had passed that law to execute the Jewish people. And the king said to Esther on the second day, also as they drank their wine at the banquet, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Even to half the kingdom it shall be done. Now, King Ahasuerus here, or Xerxes, if you want to use that name, he's, he's, he's breaking all of Lemuel's mother's rules. Okay? <laughs> Drunkenness and women. Because Esther's real pretty and she's his favorite wife and now he's drunk and now he's all happy and now whatever she wants he's going to give. Even half the kingdom it shall be done. And Queen Esther replied, if I found favor in your sight, O king, if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my petition and my people as my request. Well, that's, that's blunt. Don't execute me. <laughs> save my life and save my people. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Now if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent. For the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. What a statement. <laughs> if the Jewish people would have been sold into bondage and packed off to Egypt again or somewhere, she said, I wouldn't have bothered you with this. That's extraordinary. Anyway, but as it is, we're slated for execution and so I'm going to risk wasting your time with this trivial matter. So King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who would presume to do this? And Esther said, a foe and an enemy is the wicked Haman. Then Haman became terrified before the king and queen. <laughs> okay? So this is the combination of being drunk and angering the king. So the king arose in his anger from drinking wine, and went to the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from the queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. And he's not wrong. He's not wrong. That uh, he's, in, he's in deep trouble, and if anyone can rescue him, Esther's probably the only person on the planet that could do that. So when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. That doesn't look good. And the king said, will he even assault the queen with me in the house? So the word went out of the king's mouth and they covered Haman's face. So this is, uh, this is it. In fact, he's going to get hung on his own uh, gallows. He had prepared the gallows for Mordecai's execution and now uh, he's going to hang on it. The gallows standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows which he had prepared for Mordecai. Gallows is probably not the best rendering. Maybe it's the, when we think gallows, right, we think of a rope and hanging from a beam or something. Uh, the, the Persians actually were very fond of a, of a sharp pointed stake. And so this 75 foot high stake, 50, 50 cubits up, and um, you get impaled on the top of it, and then, uh, then you slide down it's pretty gruesome. I oh, know we're almost done. It's lunchtime. Anybody hungry? And uh, yeah. Anyway, we'll we'll pick up here next week because I, I want to make sure we don't miss uh, Proverbs sixteen, Proverbs nineteen, also Psalm two. You know, um, do not anger the king. And ultimately speaking, this is given to the millennial kings that Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
And their little conspiracy to dethrone him in the millennium is not going to work. And uh, if they want to survive that and uh, cross into the new heavens and new earth, they, they need to repent and because uh, they're, they're conspiring against Jesus Christ and his millennial rule. And uh, if the king becomes angry, uh, that's, that's not going to be good for them. So uh, that's, there's, a, there's an eschatological principle that, uh, that underlies Proverbs 20 verse 2 as well. The terror of a king provoking Jesus Christ on his millennial throne. Say, you don't want to do that. And it's curious to me. I'm going to close in prayer here in a moment, but I'm troubled. I'm troubled by our nation. I'm troubled by the protests. I'm troubled by the, the communists that are uh, raging outside of the White House. And they would love it nothing more than to uh, assassinate our president and bring the government down. And to, to they, They've made it public. They want to end capitalism. They think that uh, they need to end the the racist, white, capitalistic nation that we are, and replace it. They said the Constitution has to go. And uh, I swore an oath to defend the Constitution, and that's uh, very troubling to me that we should live to see such days. So, um, And I'm amazed that, you know, you talk about the anger of the king, <laughs> uh, the things that, the long-suffering and gentleness and... and um, I think the uh, the reserved response. I wouldn't. I'd, I'd have had rubber bullets. Are you kidding me? I'd have had live ammunition days ago. And uh, yeah, you heard of Ivan the Terrible. I would have been Bob the even more terrible. So it's a good thing that the president knows what he's doing and didn't put me in there. Um, but still, I want to pray because the anger of a king is not a good thing. And I wonder at what point will they cross the line and. Uh, and how ugly is this going to get? So Father, I do pray, as I stated, um, I pray for our nation, I pray for the believers, those with wisdom to shine forth brightly, to express the truth of your word as you have revealed it. And I pray for the lost to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and I pray for the enemies to be put down, I pray for freedom to be preserved. And Father, we know we know that our, the present administration you know, supports Israel and supports nationalism. He's a nationalist, not a globalist. And so he's hated, even though he's lining up with, and because he lines up with Genesis 11. But the Tower of Babel crowd, they want, uh, they want to bring in the globalist utopia. And so, uh, so he's an enemy. Also, he's a friend of Israel. He lines up with Genesis 12 which also puts him in the crosshairs of, of uh, this present fallen world system. So, um, Father, I appreciate uh, your grace. I appreciate your mercy. And uh, I do pray for our nation. Protect us, bless us, preserve us. Also for Governor Abbott, for the mayor, for everyone that has sovereignty over our temporal lives. Give wisdom and blessing, Father. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.